0: You are now tuning in to the Own the Build podcast. Join Sealing's very own Paul Hemming, where each week he interviews experts from the world of construction and asks all the important questions around intelligent construction management. Hello and welcome to episode 102 of the Own the Build podcast with me, Paul Hemming. I hope everyone is doing well today. I certainly am. And in the studio joining me today, we have Simon Robinson, who is a fellow QS, a director at Subport, who are an award-winning quantity surveying consultancy who support subcontractors to secure their profits. Now, I am personally, as an ex-subcontractor myself, delighted to have someone on the show who is supporting subbies it's not often that you get to speak to someone who is supporting subbies often the focus i feel or i definitely felt when i was a subby myself was on how you support main contractors and clients so delighted to have simon on the show simon welcome to own the build how the devil are you doing
1: yeah i'm great thank you thanks for the intro as well yeah, it feels good um, to finally get on this for yourself, and uh, I know we've been talking about it for a while, so uh, it feels good to be uh, on here. And
0: You're a tough s- man to pin down
1: <laughs> It's all the help that I give to these subcontractors, it takes my time <laughs> up.
0: Excellent, and where's that delightful accent? That sounds like an accent from the northwest to me.
1: And that's it, yeah, I'm from Salford, if you know where that is, uh, just outside Manchester, so uh Yeah. That's where I'm from. That's where I currently am.
0: Excellent. I do. I'm a big fan of the Manchester music scene. I love the Stone Roses, the Cortina, So I'm a bit. Of, I have a bit of a love affair with the Manchester music scene. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, it's great. And don't f- don't forget the football scene either.
0: <laughs> no, I'm less interested in the football scene. I'll sit with Birmingham City on that front. But you know, we, let's not get into it because Birmingham City are far too bad for me to even engage in conversations with the Manchester clubs. So. <laughs> Talk to me, Simon. Um, I know you, I've been pestering you for months to try and speak to me and speak to the owner Build audience, but the audience themselves don't know you, don't know about like, your experience and where, how that led you to run your current business. Could you just introduce yourself, your experience in the industry and what you do
1: now? Yeah, sure. So um, I'm a, a QS, background, commercial manager, I started as a trainee QS, made my way up to assistant, uh, project QS, senior QS, commercial manager, and you go through it. And I've worked for the, you know, the the big main contractors in the UK, worked for Balfour Beatty, worked for Care, uh, and some other big named, well-known main contractors, if you like. While I was working for the main contractors, at, at sort of like the uh, my end of the time with them, I'd come across subcontractors all the time that I felt that just didn't have any commercial support They'd be a really good functioning subcontractor. Their quality would be there, you know their their management style, they'd, they'd be reliable, you know they'd be able to do everything out on site. But when it came to the commercial aspects the projects uh, that you know they were just lacking in, in, in knowledge and help and experience operationally
0: they were strong but commercially they were a bit weak
1: exactly that you know uh, and the, the the main contractors want want them to do more for them um, i.e. is in work uh, because of how strong they were you know with the quality and the operational side but you know it was the commercials letting them down and I just felt like these, these people that I was coming across and managing and my team were managing day in day out you know lacked that experience that knowledge that know-how to enable them to secure their, their if you like the profits of, of that day but also it was it was preventing them from moving forward and developing further so support was was developed if you like as a as a you know a brainchild of, of myself uh, and uh, sofa uh, my business partner, to to provide, you know, this support to them, uh, which we've done ever since.
0: And you talked about main contractors finding operationally savvy subcontractors. You know, they want to give them more work for obvious reasons. The work gets done well, site progresses, everyone's happy. Now, how do you feel? Cause I've got my own bias on this topic but interested to hear from you do you think that main contractors find operationally very good subcontractors but commercially poor subcontractors like if that's the makeup of the subcontract, they're good on site but they're maybe commercially quite weak do you think that main contractors find that kind of a business appealing and attractive to work with
1: it's a really good question you know and there's so many main contractors out there. You know, it'd be unfair for us to broad brush them uh, and say it's all one or it's all the other. You've got the the, the spectrum in between of ten to one. Uh, you know, level one to level ten, if you like, and, and each each main contractor will sit at a different place on that scale. Some main contractors are, you know, are really good and really fair and will advise the subcontractors, you know, commercially, you, you need to become stronger, you need to do this, you need to do that. And at times, uh, a, a commercially naive subcontractor or a commercially poor subcontractor will hinder the main contractor because, it, it you know, they might have a variation which is, what I'd call back to back. It's a variation for the subcontractor, and it's a variation for the main contractor. So the main contractor wants the subcontractor to, you know, get get their pricing for that prompt, there, get it agreed, so they can assess the impact and then progress that onto their client. But if you've got a, a you know a commercially naive subcontractor or one that is unable to deliver. The commercials promptly. It'll be holding up that sub subcon- that main contractor. So <clears throat> it's a fine line, really. You know, um, sub main contractors want subcontractors. It's not as
0: simple as to, what I'm suggesting. You know, saying yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, it, it's, it's just not that
1: simple. It's, it's, it's a it's you know it's very complex because do they want them? commercially strong for the straightforward variations but then commercially weak if it came to a claim or a dispute. so at times they might want them strong at times they might want them weak we, and, and each one of them are different and we can not broad brush them all the same you know some are, you know a lot of them are totally you know fair and above board and are just applying the contract but the subcontractors don't have the knowledge of the contract which is being applied. That, that's kind of the issue. That's
0: definitely how I feel. I mean, I've I worked for larger subcontractors where we had relatively sizable and experienced quantity surveying teams or commercial teams, let's call them. But I guess the reason for my first question is that I often feel or often felt that I saw main contractors taking advantage perhaps of subcontractors due to the fact that the subcontractor doesn't have a commercial resource that's either big enough to com- to compete in inverted commas, or a commercial resource whatsoever to be able to manage these challenging contracts, etc. Which I guess is why I was saying, in your experience, did you feel, did you feel that, and did you feel that main contractor, what what was attractive to you, I guess, when you were a main contractor looking at a subcontractor, were you looking for a subcontractor that was commercially savvy?
1: Um. No. We'd look for some. We'd look for the subcontractor that that could deliver the project for us. Uh, you know, we'd look at the the one that was operational there. Did they have the experience to do it? You know, could they deliver the quality? We we didn't when selecting the subcontractor. We didn't necessarily look at how commercially strong or weak they were. It was about what product they would deliver. I I, I understand. You know the, the the points that you're making. Uh, <clears throat> I think that kind of comes about with the, not necessarily with the the selection of the subcontractor based on their commercial awareness, but I think a, a lot of, 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 of what you've been talking about comes into play with the procurement and what and the contract that that the works is procured under. And what I see a lot of the time is if you like the unfair disproportionate of risk within the works and I I don't think subcontractors are aware of what they're signing up to when they sign these contracts I think you know and and I don't want to broad brush subcontractors but I think uh, you know some subcontractors are just happy to win the contracts and don't necessarily look at the content of the contract and that could be the start of a number of problems for them
0: yeah and so you've been a main contractor working at tier 1 contractors you're now a quantity surveying consultancy who is seeing i'm guessing lots of main lots of subcontract packages through your clients that are coming from main contractors which have a disproportionate you know like risk there's a risk imbalance let's say between what you think is actually should be done and what is actually being done could you just reflect on your own experience some of the stuff that you now see you talked about unfair risk management where do you think main contractors are going wrong with how they are allocating risk in contracts to subcontractors
1: again this is I'm I'm broad brushing this but what I see uh, main contractors doing is is for For them to, they're mitigating the risk by passing it on to their supply chain, so they're passing it on to their subcontractors, if you like. So the inherent risk was in the contract. Are they mitigating the risk by just doing that? They're not. No, they're just passing it on. But these subcontractors that that are undertaking the works, are they in a position to accept the risks? that they're taking on and are they even aware that they're taking these risks on and this is what I see all the time. Yeah As, and I mean
0: uh, even if they are accepting
1: them can they manage them? Exactly exactly and, and quite often or not we'll be asked to review a contract or another client will ask us to uh, get involved in a dispute let's say and the th- first thing that we always do is okay let, you know, let's review the contract And then when we make them aware of what they've agreed to, quite a lot of the time, they're quite shocked.
0: Yeah, and that's where it comes in, that imbalance between resource, isn't it? Because often, main contractor will know that they are including certain components in the contract, certain risks, let's say, without, and kind of knowingly, they are aware that the subcontractor is unaware, which, to me, I can understand it. And honestly, I've been involved in, I've done sub-subcontracting, I've been involved in, contracts where we've done the same thing right but the question is is that the right way to manage risk and so often it isn't right so often you get away with it because nothing the the risk never comes to the fore let's say but from time to time you do get those risks actually happen and then it's the subcontractor who is managing it and they're not the right person to be managing it right
1: Correct. Yeah, they don't have the resource. They might not have the experience to manage it. You know, even though in the past the you know they've been operationally sound and you've used them a number of times, they might come across on this particular contract against a, a risk that they're just unprepared for. But all that risk is then placed with them. You know, and and that's what I see. I see main contractors using standard sort of like templates, if you like. Uh, and are placing and are awarding all their works under these standard these standard contracts, which they take a lot of time and a lot of effort to read. Um, they're not easy to read. We all know that contracts aren't easy to read. Uh, and so subcontractors tend to put them to the side and think, you know, I'll, I'll look at that when I have chance because something's happening on site and this needs to happen and it, because it's difficult if it's difficult, it tends to get pushed to the side, um, and before they know it, they've started on site and they're away and they're working and they haven't reviewed it yet. You know, and I'm not trying to be—I'm not trying to say that every subcontractor's like that, but you know, I do see it on a on a frequent basis. No, I know. think it's a fair uh,
0: representation, isn't it? But
1: <clears throat>
0: yeah, can I can I ask something? is—is is the passion like the reason why you set up your business? Is that a reflection on, you know, is it a passion for improving subcontractors' businesses? Yes, I guess it is. But is it also trying to make projects overall better in that you can go back to a contractors and say, this is not how it should be managed from the subcontractors' perspective? Because I think often that doesn't happen, right? The subcontractor says, as you said, throw it in the drawer, whatever. Do you think that you're, by actively pushing back and talking about who is managing risk, making better projects?
1: Yeah, 100%. <clears throat> I mean, my, my passion is to support subcontractors, help them grow, help them expand and improve the construction community. And I, f- I find it, you know, at times, some of the main contractor QSs aren't, aren't fully aware of what's within these contracts that they're sending out because, again, it's a standard one that they've sent out and they haven't read every clause, So I think it's really good and it's really positive when one's read in detail the risk are pulled out for it and the implications of the risk on that project and then they discuss between both parties who's going to manage them and how they're going to manage them because at this point you're not just blindly accepting a risk. By accepting that risk, you're gonna then say it's at the front of your mind. Okay, how am I gonna manage that risk? How am I gonna ensure if I am owning that risk, how it won't happen? So if you know if it's a, a delayed damage or something like that, and you know that risk is on the subcontractor, you bring that to light. Then it's okay, right? What mitigation measures are we going to have to ensure that we're not in delay? What what can we put in place? And having those open discussions between the subcontractor and the main contractor, rather than, you know, when the event happens, everyone goes, how are we going to deal with this? There's already a plan in place. I think you're 100% and an right. Agreement, and an agreement with both, both parties, who owns that risk and who's not. When when we review these contracts for, for for subcontractors and go back to the main contractors, we're not you know we don't say you know from the subcontractors' point of view no 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 we're not accepting all these risks we're saying these are the risks how will we as together as a as a as a team going to you know going to deal with these risks you know during the build. You know, and and a lot of good stuff, a lot of good stuff comes out of this. You know, at times it's like, okay, there might be a risk on, let's just think of one here, there might be a risk on materials. So it's like, okay, well, if the, you know, who's going to take the material risk if there's a delay on it? okay because the materials are coming from you know a a different country or part of the products or the raw material is with everything that's going on in the world today so is there an opportunity that we can that we can order them early order them before we need it okay if we do then that's going to affect cash flow can the subcontractor sustain that or can the main contractor Okay, if we're doing that, then are the materials going to go to site or the off-site? Can we get a payment for on-site or can we get payment for vesting off-site? And then it allows not just the subcontractor necessarily to get paid off the main contractor, but the main contractors can go back to their client and say, we've identified the risk with the subcontractor. It's a known risk. We can quantify it. We can eliminate fear. for you. We can protect you by, you know, having the materials on tight or vesting them off-site, you know, and all this can be mitigated, but these are the, you know, the couple of actions. Nobody loses in that scenario. It's just all parties working together, you know, and and that's only come about by somebody having a look at the project and saying, these are the risks, how we're going to deal with them. I think that so often,
0: Simon, what, seems to happen and it's a really interesting example that you bring up and it's very contemporarily relevant right but so often it's nip and tuck but in that relationship between main contractor and subcontractor that you kind of think oh it's better not to draw out that risk because i'm just going to sneak it in right and although i don't know five times out of ten six times out of ten you might get away with it the other 30 40 percent of the time you're not going to get away with it right and actually by drawing out that risk, openly talking about it from the main contractor to subcontractor relationship, you actually mitigate the risk, you manage it as a collective. And actually, more often than not, if you're that main contractor subcontract relationship is strong, it actually helps you as the main contractor with the client. In exactly that example that you say, where actually you can collectively get paid in advance because you can collectively vest that material on site, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. So you're speaking my language and actually... In the second half of the show, we're going to talk about subcontractor surgeries and kind of like why you hold them and then kind of like your tips for what you look out for in contrast. But I, we'll get into that right after this break, Simon. Hello, it's me again. I wanted to share a quick story with you on why I co-founded c with my best mate, Chris. Chris and I, we're both QS's, and this is going to sound sad, but one night we were sat in the pub talking about subcontract tendering and we realised the industry had a problem. Number one, procurement was too paper-based. Number two, it was too time-consuming and every QS had their own unique way of doing things. And number three, perhaps most importantly, if you want to competitively tender, you need to know hundreds of the best subcontractors. We simply didn't. That's why we created C-Link. It's software to solve subcontract tendering we wanted to remove these challenges and help the industry get better so if you or someone you know tenders with subcontractors you've got to see our software head over to our link www.get.c-link.com forward slash podcast to find out more i will include it in the description box so again there's no excuses now let's get right back to the show One of the things I want to talk to you about in this part of the show, so we want to talk about, you do subcontractor surgeries, which, and I know that one of them that you have coming up is focused on kind of the top 10 things to look out for in contracts if you're a subcontractor. So I want to drill down into that with you in this half of the show, but perhaps given you know the mindset, it, it's to try not to, I, I like to think of an industry where it's collaborative and you know we're all kind of working together. So rather than it being what can a subcontractor look out for, to be scared of it's almost maybe we look at it as what can a subcontractor and main contractor look out for at the start of any tender process almost or contracts which are the key things that should be brought to the fore so that collectively you can manage that risk in the way that we are kind of describing in in the first half of the show so first and foremost what are subcontractor surgeries and why do you guys do them?
1: Yeah sure it's a great question so um, we, we used to do uh, commercial awareness workshops which were sort of like half a day classroom workshops uh, and we we started them and we we rolled um, we did quite a few in various cities across the UK before covid covid came and you know closed everything down the country down and we wanted to start start something up co- ruin the world <laughs> yeah yeah 100% so we we yeah, we we wanted to start back in in providing uh, subcontractors with another resource and thought that we'd, we'd moved on from from the uh, from the awareness workshops, if you like. And we started doing the subcontractor surgeries. So the first one was, was last month um, in Manchester. And the next one is the 2nd of March in Leamington Spa. So they're free, absolutely free for oh, people to attend. My
0: hometown, that's my, yeah. that my
1: birthplace of all <laughs> places. Never, it never, never yeah. gets a shout out for
0: anything, but I'm happy with that. Well... I not yeah, even come on myself, Simon. You're going to regret even mentioning that.
1: Great stuff. So yeah, Leamington Spa, second of March. It's free to attend. Uh, they're a couple of hours long, and basically, what we do is we provide um, the, our team of quantities of will be there, and we'll be there to answer any questions that that people have. What we find when we when we meet a subcontractor, um, or we you know we we do an event or, or a training day, is that At the end of it people come up to us and say i've just got this can i ask you advice on this can you advise on this so the idea of the surgery is to provide a resource to people who don't have that resource in house or don't have it available so if you're a subcontractor and you've you've got a question that you want answering how can i improve my tender success how can i mitigate risk how can i capture variations better how can i deal with my final account better then come along to that our full team will be there including myself and we just give uh, informal free advice with refreshments and drinks provided it, it turns up in you know it's a good chance for you to network as well to, with people in your area the other thing that we do there um, is we'll do a theme for it and it's only the first 20 minutes or so and the theme at the minute are the 10 top clauses to look out in contracts and that that's the theme of it but after that after the first 20 minutes, any question, go.
0: It's open for them. Yeah. So so talk to me then. You're a man who probably has done a huge amount of tendering and procurement yourself as a main contractor to a subcontractor, done lots of contracts, main contractor to subcontractor, and you're now seeing loads of different, like you're almost aggregating all these different main contractors, tenders and contracts that are being received by your various subcontract clients. So you're a man who sees a lot of tenders and contracts. For you, maybe we won't get to 10, but let's kind of focus on three or four here, right? If you think about what are the things that really stand out to you, and I'm thinking with both my subcontractor and main contractor hat on, what do you think are the things that should be really extracted and drawn out um, as key clauses or key issues for managing risk in a contract?
1: So, yeah, I'm happy to go through, uh, you know, a number of them. Uh, I think the first one is payment terms. What are the payment terms? And and they should be quite open and clear uh, with a payment timetable. Sometimes I see it in main contracts how there's a series of dates, Obviously we we we're compliant with the Construction Act and those dates are separated out. So it can be a bit fuzzy or a bit grey for an uncommercially aware subcontractor to realise that they had to add, you know, the valuation date to the due date to the final date to work out how many days it is. I think I think more could be done just to make it absolutely black and white through signing up to it. And,
0: Providing a schedule, right? A schedule of valuation dates together with yeah. that payment date. Easiest way.
1: Easiest way. And I, I, I did discussion a, a while ago with a PQS practice on payment terms. Uh, and they were working for a, a well-known retailer. And their retailer wanted to improve their supply chain. How many different, not, not the main contractors, but how could they increase competition for their subcontract packages, how could that how could that be done? And we, we went back into about the different different things that could be done to encourage subcontractors to compete, if you like, uh, to work for this for this particular blue tick retailer. And the one that was striking was better payment terms. If you're paying, if you're not paying your, or if you pay your supply chain on even 30 days rather than the 60 that they're used to, you're going to increase increase the amount of subcontractors that will contest and try and win that work. And if you drop it down to 21 or 14 days, you're going to have a hell of a lot competing for it and a lot more competitively because they'll know that they won't have to fund that work for such a
0: hundred million percent. This is something that we see a lot with our clients to be honest with you. I get asked what are the longest possible terms that I could include and I say you know it's kind of a bit of a back to front way of thinking about it. You want to create this competitive environment. You want to be a client that contractors want to work for right where they think oh okay that one's a 14 day payment terms. I'm very very keen to do that. Not necessarily that You have to maybe say that from the outset, but you know, it's the way I often see it is you know, maybe you'll have like 30 day payment terms as your standard, but be willing to maneuver down to the 21 and 14 or whatever, depending on what you're comfortable on cash flow wise. But on the basis that that brings with it some kind of discount, because naturally contractors want to get better payment terms, They, they want to be funding it themselves. It costs a lot of money, it's a lot of heartache and stress, isn't it? What do you consider to be? Anecdotally, typical payment terms that main contractors are giving to subcontractors right now. You see loads. Is it 45 days, 30 days, 14 days? What do you typically see, do you think?
1: I typically see probably around 40, 42, 45 days. Really? Okay. I'd say 50%, maybe maybe 50% is 35 days, 50% north of 40 days. I think, like, you know, the, the government projects should take a lead on this and write it within their contracts that the main contractors have to provide it to the subcontractors on this and if, they, you know, if, they, if they're committing to that project and they're committing you know to the funds to fund that project then release the cash earlier and get better value and, and increase the competition across the board and the results that they'll get will be they'll get a different different type of subcontractor that will apply for it, that, that will it'll, it'll make it available to them.
0: Well, that's kind of why I wanted to ask you, You know what you see as kind of like the average and saying 42 days. It's interesting now. people listening will be able to think, you know, just by making our project 30 days, 35 days, that let's say 30 days, make it monthly payment, you're going to stand out. But I think that you've actually, when you say, that when the first I say to you, give me 10 points for the contract... So, um, for your surgeries, what are the most important contract points? And the first one you say is payment terms. Naturally, when you hear that, you think, "Well, that's kind of obvious, isn't it?" But the point is that it is obvious, but like it can be used to create value, right? How what does what does these subbies are receiving? Hundred tenders in a year. Most of them, the average one is forty-two day payment terms. What are, what are the best payment terms I can offer? How can I then use that to actually create value for my product? How can I stand out? And I think that too often the tender process is more of the same. We've always done it this way. Let's do it that way. But actually, you've got to think about, I guess you see that now on your side, receiving all these subcontract tenders, that you see crap tenders. You see the same tender again and again. And if you want the best subbies and you want the the best value, you've got to, innovate a little bit you've got to stand out and i think payment terms yeah it sounds really bland to start with but when you put it in create a schedule tell them that the you you're offering better payment terms than anyone else you are going to stand out you make it simple right
1: yeah 100 percent. and you'll you'll find that the the commercially aware subcontractors will discard tenders you know 60 days why am i going to do it Forty days, why? You know, why, no why am chance. I going to oh, do no, it? I know
0: hardly any subby who'd be interested in sixty days. I don't know many that would be interested in forty-five. What's
1: the point? You know, and they'll toss it aside. So those those main contractors who are thinking, oh yeah, you know, I'm getting I'm getting an extra fifteen days on my supply ch- supply chain. Yeah, you are, but you're not getting value. You get you get you know probably a better product because you get more competition you get, you get the quality, better quality subcontractors because they have more choice and they choose to, to tender for you. And, and you'd get more competition, which would give you a better value for your work. But you know they're putting that over an extra 15 days of cash flow. If, if, you, if you want the work doing it, do it. You, you, I mean, you're speaking my language, Simon. We've
0: only, we've only covered item number one. And I'm already thinking the world's a better place, isn't it? So talk talk to me. So we've got payment terms at number one. Let's talk about a second contract clause or risk that you think could be managed in a different way.
1: The next one is everybody's bugbear. It's retentions. It is everybody's bugbear in, 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 uh, in the industry, especially the, the subcontractor community. There's several bills that have tried to go through in the you know UK government to, to move them along. We do get projects now that, that don't have retentions, but retentions are still there within the, the the private sector, and they are very much alive and very much kicking. And I've seen I've seen them drop. I've seen them drop from three to five percent, from five to three percent, I should say, uh, in some cases. But what I've also seen, sort of like you know, sneak in, in in the in the last couple of years, is retentions that are linked to the main contractor completion date and not the subcontractor completion date. And we all know why they're doing I'm this. Like I'm
0: telling you, I'm telling you, Simon. I used to get that all the time, all the time. I saw that, and it was always something I would debate and try and negotiate on
1: yeah and it, it's more and more it is more and more that, that that are now doing it and we know why they're doing it because they they don't want to pay retention out until they're paid out themselves and it, you know it, it, it covers their liability for a longer period of time but put yourself in this position you know if you're the the steel frame uh, subcontractor and you're doing the steel frame of the building Well, it might be another year till the the building's handed over from when you do your steel frame. And it might already be a two-year retention period. You're going to have to wait three years for your retention. And let's face it, you've got to hope that that main contractor's still in business (laughs) in three years. Their team won't be there. Their team will have gone after six months. 100%. But so this is the interesting thing, right? So
0: if I'm a main contractor QS, I'm sat here listening to this and thinking, okay, but... What can I do? Because I've got this in my contract. I've got the cash flow challenge that it, that it, that it brings me. How else do I man- I've got to manage? I've always managed it this way. What else am I gonna do? Of course, I have to have it tied to my own PC day because that's when I achieve practical business. When I get the retention, it's the only way we can manage it cash flow wise, right? That's the way it's always been done. But what is the way that it could be done in your opinion?
1: It is a good question. I think, I think how it's got to be done is companies have got to, you know, construction companies have got to develop more and develop their relationships more. And I think there's a lot of differences between the, the, the value of the package of works. So I can see a package of works where it has like, you know, £1,500 retention held for three years and it's like, well, what's the point? It's just an admin burden on everybody. You know, if you're going to carry on working with that company, you're going to develop relationships with that company. The relationship is far better than the retention. That's the that's the key to do it is to is to develop relationships with your supply chain, so it they'll want to come out and they'll want to correct defects here without you know without being battered for the you won't get your five percent, which is. 1200 quid where you think well what what's the point it's going to cost me more to correct the defect
0: why am i working for these people anyway if this is how they're going to treat me? but let's go back to your example i think it's a good example structural steel work it's a bit different i don't know if it's maybe E, which cl- finishes much closer to the PC date. structural steel work if i am structural steel work contractor you're advising them they re- or you're not even advising them but you're speaking to them They receive a tender, let's think like groundwork, a structural steel, timber frame, those kind of contractors who are right at the start of the show. They receive a tender and it says retention 5% to be released 12 months after main contractor achieves PC.
1: What do they think about that? What's their reaction? Their reaction is... Well, what's the size of my package and how much is that going to be? So, if it's just something like a structural steel worker, it could be a significant amount. It could be 25k, it could be 30k that they're not going to get now for, for three years. Which. Are they just going to add it on? Potentially, yeah. Yeah, potentially. At that point, if, if, if that's identified at tender stage, then why not? Why not add on 50% of it for risk? You know. Is that like the general
0: practice? I hear that a lot from subbies that we know. You know, oh, there's retention, I'll just add it on because I'm not going to get paid it for 36 months anyway and I can't be bothered. So I'll just add it on. But do you think like, and again, this is kind of trying to put on a new, innovative, different way of thinking kind of a hat, right? Like our main contract competitive tenders on structural steelwork, groundworks, timber frame, those kind of packages where they're they're saying it's 5% retention are contractors almost across the board, adding on a couple of percent because they're going to get it back for retention? Whereas if they didn't do that, they might actually the hundred grand package may actually be ninety eight grand across the board. But everyone's pumping up by two or three percent. For do you think that's something that
1: happens? Do you think? Yeah, hundred percent that happens. Hundred percent. We're not going to get it, so let's add it on. So
0: what do you do? What do you do? Because on one token, you want to be. More competitive as a main contractor, you want to appeal to subcontractors and attract them to you. On the other hand, you've got all your bosses, and you've got your own contract which says that if you do that, Simon, you're going to be stuck if there is a defect and you're going to be stuck cash flow wise. It's, it's difficult, isn't it? It is,
1: yeah, it is difficult, and that's why these things we, you know, we always go into a, as a negotiation they're never black and white so we'll look at them and say well how often, what is that sum that's going to be retained how often have we worked with this client how many live projects have we got with them what's the overall retention value if we add up all the projects that we've got with them and put that in front of them and say you know this one might be only 15k but there's 10 over there there's 5 over there, collectively now we're at 50k 50k is a massive amount and also something that, that that I see very few subcontractors do is credit check their clients. How secure it, before you go ahead and you commit to spending for this for this main contractor, how how financially secure are they? And I think that it's something that we that, that subcontractors need to take ownership of and credit check their clients before they undertake the work. So if you're doing a, if you're doing um if you're getting retention took off your of of a of a main contractor with a great score it's totally different to a low score you know and and you want to work for that person but the, the the big thing that I say is always look and present the commun- uh the cumulative amount of retention that 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 company has on yours and are you happy with that
0: yeah it's a really interesting way of looking at it also as a main contractor though right on the other hand I know I'm trying to be the main contractor in this conversation but it's actually a way of thinking about that risk and trying to think about how you could manage it it's a case of saying you know we've gone out to tender with all these different subcontracts. this one is our favourite because operationally we work with them on project X Y and Z and actually maybe we can be a bit more flexible with the retention on this project because on projects A B and C we actually have 50K in your example of retention against them, so we think we can manage it. Yeah,
1: 100%. And- I mean, I, I sat down between the we, 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 for a subcontractor only a couple of months ago and a main contractor, and we had this very discussion, and we said, you're holding 2K on us on this one, 3K on this one, 2K on that one, but this one that we're going to do is going to be 25K, so can you release those? Because we'll, you'll already have it on us on that one, so it was a trade-off. They accepted the, you know, the five percent on this project, but these ones that were due up in six months' time or something like that, they all got released. And it, it is—it's—it's it's a conversation. It's working together and not saying, "This is it. It's my way or the highway." It's—it's it's, it's working together. Always,
0: uh, we'll do what we've always done.
1: Yeah, yeah. And
0: project silo I- mentality, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, it's take a step back and actually think about the bigger picture business-wise, right? But that's quite difficult, to be fair, as a project team. But it is a tool that is available to you, right? To actually step back and think, how do we make this work? You know, we are, we're getting into some interesting stuff here, but I'm really on item number two. So I'm desperate to get another one in before the end of the show, Simon. Give me a third. You've got payment terms, which we've nailed, retention, we've gone back and forth on. Give me a third key contract clause.
1: Uh, th- He's smiling from one. ear to ear, here, guys. <laughs> the third one's damages, delay damages. Uh, oh, you know, nasty! It, I know, I know. So yeah, I mean, two types in there: direct delay damages from the the what the main contractor incurs uh, as a result of a delay from the subcontractor, and then liquidated and ascertained damages, lads, as they're known. And yeah, it's these. You know, they they need to be known before you get into the contract because potentially they they have the opportunity to to make or break you. And really, you want to have a look and say, "Am I prepared to undertake these works with that level of risk?" And I think that I think the main contractors and the main contractor community, with this one, it is just let's pass it on. Whereas really, you know, is that subcontractor in a position? where they can manage that risk. Some of the ones that I've seen are, are unbelievable. I, I, I've i seen somebody with, you know, that's doing 6Ks worth of work with 40K LDs on them. And when you point that out to the owner, you say, like, why, why are you taking on all that risk? And they're, oh, I didn't realise, well, I'm not doing it. Right, OK, then. Like, you know, I, th- I think I think you've made the right call there.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's, you know, quite often... There's a couple of things, isn't there? So with LADs, if we focus on LADs just like as as the main one, so number one, they can't actually be given to the subcontractor if the main contractor himself hasn't actually incurred them, right? So often you see a main contractor saying, yep, yeah, we've incurred them, even if they actually haven't, and trying to take off. So for a subcontractor, it's a massive thing to know that they have to prove that that money has exited their account for that specific issue. But also so often but it's 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 complicated isn't it and it's again taking time to think about it rather than just doing the easy thing let's say the example is you got 20k LADs in your main contract with the client if you're late that might be okay for the E contractor who's doing a huge amount of it but for the painter decorator you can't ask them for 20 k LADs on a 40k package let's say what would you want to see then in that example where I'm I'm a paint a decorator I'm doing paint a decorator package and I've got 20k standard per week how should I manage it should I say alright it's 3k for you or like what do you think is the best way to manage that
1: I mean obviously for my clients I'll, I'll always go in with the you know we're not accepting any because that's what we're there to do mitigate the risk for them so you'll start at one end of the spectrum and we'll start at the other no it's not but let's be realistic here the the that there has to be a level which they have to accept in, in, in taking the works. They, they have to accept their level of risk involved. I always flip it on the head and I always say to the main contractor, Tell me the value of your project. Tell me it. They never will, but you can guess at it, you know. You can guess at it quite easily, you know. You'll look at it and you'll say, Well, Four million, five million, I'm in the right ballpark and they'll look at each other and, "Mm, okay, mm," bit of the head nodding or, you know, rinsing up of the face. Okay, so I'm in between four and five million and you're on 30K a week and I've got a 50K package and you want me on 30K a week. It's not proportionate. And what I always want to see is that it's proportionate. As a main contractor, you're accepting a risk of 30k on a five million pound project, so I would like the same risk applied to my package, please. And, and I and would so, like to see.
0: Yeah, I think. I mean, you're talking absolute sense here. And again, so for the main contractor to do that, often you think, well, you might think when you're creating the tender document, right, or the contract. Now the tender document, let's say, when you're creating that, you think, well. The mentality could be to say, I'm going to put in 30k a week because that's what we've got and let's see if the subby picks it up, All right? But actually, subbies, that's probably one of the first things that they look at and it's one of the first things that will make them say, oh, I don't want to work with these guys, they're stupid. So with that in mind, and obviously no, main, you, you want this competitive tender as a main contractor, so you've got to be really thinking about how you're perceived they don't know you from jack right and then they receive this tender They this absolutely not this is mental um so what would you do would you in your example would you say that when you're creating that tender as a main contractor you should just make it proportional from the outset
1: i think that's totally fair to do it that way as a when I was a main contractor, did I do it that way? You wouldn't have done it, no. would you? You know, got a wry smile there. You're talking all the talk nope. now, Simon, but you wouldn't have done it, would you? <laughs> nope. No, no, wouldn't. I wouldn't. And that's what I'm talking about: subcontractors needing to become more, you know, more contractually aware to know to look out for this, because you know it's it's very easy for the main contractor just to leave that in. And quite but often, you wouldn't
0: have done it then, Simon. But you wouldn't have done it then. Sorry to. No. You're shaking your head. You wouldn't have done it back then. Now, you work with sub, you know the subcontract mentality much better.
1: Would you do it now? I would do it now. Yeah, but I would also make it known what I was doing. I would. I would push and advertise the fact that, that I wouldn't. It wouldn't be. I'd just write it in the contract and would not broadcast. That's what I've done. I would broadcast it and then use it as a negotiation tool, make them aware and hopefully for me to get a better tender price back. How
0: would you how would you broadcast it?
1: I would I would put it within the uh the opening tender letter. So the one where you write before you put all your contracts. Behind it, you know, and the drawings behind it, and the bill of quant to whoever you're going to send, you know, where you say we're inviting you to, to, you know, to tender for this work at Salford School X, you know, and then I'd put on there, please, you know, please be aware that payment terms are 30 days, retention's linked. Yeah, here's, to your, the, here's the valuation schedule. To your yeah, and your the LDs will be proportionate to your tender son and I'd put it there and I'd, and, I'd, and I'd advertise it and I'd put it on the front page because I'll, everybody reads that front page but not many people got a page so
0: you've nailed it you've nailed it it's advertising it isn't it I, I, I'm a firm believer in this and we do this a lot at Stephen this is kind of what we believe that as the main contractor when you are tendering you are marketing yourself and your project I don't think main think that enough. So when you say advertise, I think you're absolutely right. It should scream out that, and again, let's put ourselves in the position of the subby who receives 100 tenders, and we've talked about this a lot, they'll receive 100 tenders in a year, 95 of them are going to look identical. Five of them are going to be like, wow, this seems like a progressive, forward-thinking business that I want to work with. How do you make yourself that that tender pack? And it's about being clear and advertising the things that will really sing to them. And I think quite often that point is missed, isn't it? It's just, here's the drawings and give us a price.
1: A hundred percent. Everybody making a tender bid, at some point does the tender bid, no bid decision. Am I going to bid for this? Yes or no? And as a main contractor, you want everybody to say yes, because that'll, what will give you the best value and the best product by having the most competition. You want as many people as you can to say, yes, I will tender for this. And like you said, you've got to advertise your positives to make people make that decision easier. Yes, I will. That's it. That's it for me. It's
0: simple stuff, isn't it? It's simple stuff when you think about it in in that light. And unbelievably, I mean, this is probably one of the longest episodes we've had, Simon, but it's been really (laughs) fascinating. We've only done three out of the ten, but... Unfortunately, we are at the end of the show, but it's been fantastic talking to you. I am absolutely certain that whether it's a subcontractor, a main contractor, or even a client professional listening to this podcast, they will have gone away from it thinking tomorrow I might behave differently. And that's kind of exactly why we do this podcast. So I will leave details of you and your business in the podcast description. Leamington Spa, what is the date in Leamington Spa, Simon, remind me?
1: The second of March, three till five, come along, really informal i 'll be there, my full team to give advice um, on any you know contractual matters uh, that you need, but it 's really informal, three till five, second of March, Levington Spa is hometown <laughs> <laughs>
0: get down there, get down there, and so that is everything for today. Thank you for coming on the show so i 'm an absolute pleasure mate. And I will speak to everyone again next week. See you later, Simon. Cheers, mate.
1: Thanks a lot. Cheers now and play. Bye, everyone.